0: It seems like you almost just trial by fire jumped in, but, but I mean, obviously, hearing you talk, you've, you've a very solid grasp of what you were doing and w- what you were looking to see out of it.
1: You know what I mean? Reckless optimism. Reckless <laughs> optimism. I can sum it up in yeah. two words. That's the two words that Beautiful. categorize my my perspective, and it, it's a back, it's look, it's back to the, the why not kind of thing. Um, I think that is a, you know, an easier summation of it, but when you have reckless optimism and then you're not, for me, when you're talking about the, uh, the failure side of things, when you're not afraid to fail at something, then it gives you a much clearer or much uh, more carefree approach to stuff, right? So with what I do, to move things forward, you have to take risks, right? By definition, it's all a risk. But doing so in a, i'm okay with that right i live with the decisions i make business-wise and other and if it doesn't work out so be it that's okay being okay with that allows you to navigate it quickly and you kind of come full circle with it for me a lot of people get in trouble is they don't they're so afraid to fail that they'll either stay on a path they should have punted from Mm -hmm. a long time right or don't take the chance initially right and hinder themselves from even knowing is it going to fail or not? But I think the latter is, is a lot. I would say a big issue that a lot of entrepreneurs face is knowing once you failed, you know, I don't know who came up with the term, but fail fast.
0: Yeah. Right. And get yeah.
1: off of it. Yeah. You, you got to be as quick to pick up the next thing as you were to go down that initial path. Yeah, Kill it quick and be okay with that.
2: Thank you for tuning into the 27th episode of the El Toro.com podcast. So, Today we have a Louisville native and a current Newport Beach, California resident with us, Matt Case. I, I really don't know why you'd move from Kentucky to Newport Beach. No good reason. Yeah, no good reason at all. Okay, well, that's that's good to know. So, Matt Case is a partner in Bionatis and Blue On Energy. He is the CEO of Luminos International. And as if that wasn't enough to put on your plate, you're also the CEO of Stamina Pro. Now Bionatus has significant holdings in multiple breakthrough technology companies, each solving a major problem within enormous global markets. Now, Matt brings a unique background of business experience and technical expertise that belies his age, you know, having worked in commercial HVAC systems and as a sustainability analyst for large corporate clients. Now, Matt's background as a chemical engineer allows him to bridge a bit of that gap between the engineering world of innovation and the practical world of application to play an important role in corporate business development for various Bionatus industries or entities, I should say. So I don't know, like I'm wearing a luminous patch right now. Uh, we tend to, when, when folks come on and all that kind of stuff, and Marty actually hands out luminous patches mm-hmm. uh, all the time. I mean, My he was telling. spokesperson. <laughs> he really is. A, he, one, of the, one of the girls on staff here, she's actually with child. She had carpal tunnel syndrome. So mm-hmm. he started hooking her up with the patches that he was buying off you guys because his wife uses your patches Religious a lot. The and he was hooking her up with them, and it kind of alleviated a lot of that carpal tunnel within, I want to say it was like half an hour. She started to notice a bit of relief with it on my knee. I'm wearing it right now. I feel quite a bit of relief on it as well. Chris, I know that you're wearing one on mm-hmm. your neck. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I'd kind of like to note when you put, and I'm, we are not sponsored by Luminos.
0: Hmm. But we could be, man. But we could be. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but it's, it's actually a really good product. It, it fits. It like you know when you put a band aid on and it kind of pulls at the hair or something like that, this is actually really comfortable. So our listeners out there, if you got a nagging paint, if you got nagging joint paints, Luminous Patch. It's an all-natural patch. But these are the ones that everyone at the Masters uh, was talking about. So I remember you know, there were a couple of articles or a couple of commentators on, on television that actually mentioned uh, the patches, and apparently half the damn PGA Tour is wearing your patches. And I don't know if you're a sponsor of them or they're just... You know you're just in really tight with a lot of golfers you can kind of divulge that those secrets to us later i promise will yeah, stay just between us course. gals it's here Tell those stories <laughs> uh, um but you know literally half the pga tour were in these pain relief patches so in addition to the pain relief patches matt's other company stamina pro They produce patches that unobtrusively allow you to recover while you are competing or training. So instead of taking time away from practice or competition to let nagging injuries like a sore muscle or tendonitis rest and recover, you pop this tape on, helps your problem area recover while you're training and you're competing. And that's very important for folks at an office like El Toro because before we're nerds, we are athletes mm-hmm. here. Yeah, we're training constant constant athletes, constant training.
1: Athletes of the mind. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. when do you sleep? Never. <laughs> <laughs> Sundays sometimes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, a couple hours. It's more of uh, intermittent napping. Intermittent mm-hmm. napping. Yeah, and on that planes. Was. But I've gotten really ad- adept at plane sleeping. It is an art.
0: <laughs> are you one of those guys like Kobe Bryant where he sleeps in like 30 minute segments? You know you don't have to talk about. Oh yeah.
1: Oh yeah. yeah. Not yeah. so much 30 minutes, 45 ish, give or take. But wow. the two and a half hour plane flight, I've mastered. Have you? Oh yeah.
0: Oh, I need to take notes, man. Yeah. What's your secret? Zone in. You got to picture prep, a
1: river. You got to prep yourself, right? So, it's like if I know I'm about to go get on the plane, you got to switch up your morning routine. Don't drink your morning coffee. You know, all the things that you would typically do that mm-hmm. make that not possible.
0: Yeah. But feel free takes- to add in some 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 four roses right that
1: yes four roses will help you oh. in that, in that yeah.
2: how apropos that ah. you bring that up it's so medicinal today we are sipping on a little bit of four roses single barrel now this is the one Elliot oh my gosh it's the guy that it's the distiller there that did the Elliot select the four roses Elliot select he's the guy that actually sources all these OBSV um Barrels of the staple, four roses, a single barrel. Sorry, I'm trying to stay close to my microphone here, guys, while I'm reaching for my glass and pouring a little bit more libation. Mm-hmm. So, this is one of my favorites. As a lot of our listeners know, I don't like a lot of rye heavy bourbons. So, this one's very corn forward. It's 60% corn, 35% rye. That gives us about 5% for the, I believe it's the malted barley. Uh, that's coming in there as well. I like to open this up with a little tickle of water. Uh, Forgive my manners. I did not bring any bottles of water in here, so uh, you'll have to forgive me. But, you know, there's, gosh, there's 10 recipes that Four Roses puts out uh, with different combinations of their mash bills. Um, And this is probably one of the most common um, when I and feel free to chime in here, guys. Mm-hmm. When I smell this, does anybody smell fruit?
0: Yeah, flowery. Oh, flowery. Yeah. We
2: get floral. We get floral scents here. I get that sweet from like fruit sugars. Maybe like a little hint of brown sugar. I don't know.
0: Oh, it's delicious. Mm. I could. I don't know, I'm not familiar with the other 10 recipes. That You could have just been making that number up, but these are fantastic. <laughs> yeah, is... I dig it. I mean, this
2: is my go-to at the house. Mm-hmm. It's one of our primary drinks here at the office. Yep. Um, like I said, I get notes of fruit, I get notes of spice, I get hints of sugary, like brown sugar, something like that. Now, when I take my first sip out of this, if I haven't opened it up with water, I get really intense spice, um, like right at the back center of my tongue. It hits into the upper part of the mouth, and then it starts to spread to the edges with a little bit of a hint of that fruit coming through. Uh, But, you know, once that water hits, it becomes quite a bit more syrupy for me. I think I notice a lot more of that sweet. Um, I think it balances quite a bit of the oak better, in my opinion. Um, And then when it finishes, dude. I dig this finish. Mm-hmm. I really taste a little bit of that vanilla. I taste that fruit again. I taste the oak, and it warms all the way down to my belly. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I like it.
0: That's so good.
2: So, cheers, Let's gentlemen. Show. Let's get that Let's sound bite. Sluncha. Yeah, right. There you go. Mm. Sweet, sweet. So, we like to think that you flew to town, all the way from Newport Beach, California. Just for this podcast. Is that right? Specifically. Yeah, Specifically. <laughs> leaving directly after. Mm-hmm. Okay. Back Man. to the airport. Mm-hmm. We are very fortunate that the Jet Set choose to come and visit us. <laughs> it's on the runway. <laughs> so seriously, this is a very, uh, very busy week, very important week here in the city of Louisville. It is... Well, Matt, I'll let you introduce it since it's actually what brought you to town. It is our Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. It is the Kentucky yep. Derby. Mm. The what do they call it it's like two minutes in sports uh, you know that uh, it's one of the most coveted two minutes in sports or one of the most I don't know There's like a saying that they have for it, but it's literally a race that takes, it's a horse race.
0: The best, right? The best two minutes in sports? Best
2: two minutes in sports. That's it. We'll just take, we'll claim that. Yeah, that's ours. That's (laughs) ours. (laughs) Not NBC, trademark. Scream you guys. That's that's us. But literally, there's tons of horse races going on right now, and it's going to go on all week. There's tons of pageantry, fanfare, steamboat races, Mm -hmm. duck races. The city literally shuts down, Mm -hmm. and people use this as an excuse to Perpetually get shit-faced. Is that about right? In pink mm-hmm. shirts. Assessment. In pink shirts. Yeah. You dress like a damned fool. Yep. Um, you know, decadent and depraved, you know? Decadent and depraved. Uh, if, if anybody hasn't read that article by Hunter S. Thompson, decadent and depraved at the Kentucky Derby, uh, fantastic little piece. I believe that's from the 70s, though. Maybe right. Uh, so a little bit before our time. Hmm. Um, so he's in town for the Derby. We're very happy, very appreciative that you were able to come and... Spend a little bit of time
1: with Thanks, us. Thanks, Yeah, it's going to be a good week. A lot, of, uh, a lot of big fun events going on, for sure.
2: Indeed. So what's your, uh, what's your favorite aspect? And just you know, going down this tangent here, the Kentucky Derby. Oh, yeah. Favorite aspect of the Kentucky Derby, past, present. Uh, it doesn't have to be the stuff that you do
1: now for fun. It can yep. be the stuff that you used to do when you were a reckless youth. Reckless youth used to be um, impromptly or improperly utilizing uh, my family's owner passes at Churchill Downs Mm -hmm. to sneak busloads of my (laughs) collegiate associates to the backside of the track damn right where we would watch and bet you know as if we were on Millionaire's Row you know on a $50 budget Mm -hmm. so that was the the pleasantries of of the college days um now flip that around a bit um give a little shout out to one of my business partners here Joey Wagner Mr. Kentucky Derby himself, so Joey and team produce upwards of 15 events from Wednesday to Sunday. No so way! The, the Derby Week really oh kicks my off. God, that's busy. Yeah, it's insane, and you don't think I sleep? This guy. Whew. So tonight, for example, is uh, an event called Jocktails, and so they have all the jockeys come, celebrity bartend, mm. it's a fundraiser, charity, it's oh. down, right across street at the Ice House. Oh, it's great! Yeah. Um, wow. Goes to uh, Disabled Jockeys Fund. Right. Hmm. So you know raise a good bit of money for that yeah um and then Thursday forward just a a myriad of of other events you know throughout the week so
2: love it anybody else got a favorite Derby story favorite Derby pastime might not be going down anymore
0: Ooh, I snuck up to Millionaire's Row once cleaning it I was uh cleaning we did a volunteer thing where the Churchill Downs used to give a little money to sorry uh, to my school um for a trip and I snuck up there once diamond necklaces on the ground see a diamond necklace on the ground i pick it up i look at the closest table literally a spread of cash spread of cash across the table or whatnot walk over say is this someone's necklace the lady's like "Well, yes it is thank you very much hand it back over to him and kind of waiting you know kind of (laughs) doing like one of those like yeah you know i just gave you your sixty thousand dollar necklace back lady what um, are you doing she kind (laughs) of elbowed the, the the i'm presuming the husband like hey you're gonna whatever and he looks at me hands me a dollar <laughs> handed me a dollar, and I was like, "Ah, ungrateful, <laughs> mm-hmm. ungrateful." Mm-hmm. Man, you could uh,
2: you could have really impressed a future girlfriend one day if you weren't so damned honest, Chris. Oh
0: man, ruined it. Ruined oh, it.
2: That's okay. That's okay. So I, I i love, and they don't do this anymore because they, it was so freaking dangerous. But are you, any of you guys familiar with the porta potty
0: races at the derby? Oh, oh the yes. Oh yes.
2: Okay. Oh, yes. So. In the early 2000s, I remember this specifically, we'd go out there and, you know, blazing hot sun on a Kentucky Derby Saturday, and these people in the infield, and it gets drunk, people just get drunk totally preface, crazy, preface, crazy.
1: Drama. Preface the infield. That's yeah, a whole you other should describe the infield. Okay, right? yeah.
2: so the infield is where anybody can get a ticket and go, <laughs> and they will wheel in, and people get really innovative with respect to how they smuggle booze into the Kentucky Derby. I mean, I used to put tubing inside of my belt and fill it with pure grain alcohol. I could fit in a 32-inch belt. I, I'm, I don't have a 32-inch waist anymore. Oh. Um, I mean, but I'm an athlete, so i nice <laughs> fit. Uh, but, you know, I could fit eight shots in a tube behind my 32-inch waist uh, behind the belt (laughs) there, and I'd tape it in. Uh, It was a fantastic concept. I I, I felt I was a genius at the time. I should have patented it. Mm -hmm. Um, But alas, uh, here I am. So people would get tore up, and Mm -hmm. they'd climb on top of these rows, dozens and dozens and dozens of port and two people would start, and they'd start racing to the other end, all the while, everybody, all these hooligans in the damned infield that are usually covered in mud and can can barely stand, they're throwing glass bottles, yeah. mint and julep <laughs> glassware at these folks crossing, and they'd get tagged with oh, beers, yeah. they'd get tagged with bottles. And I'm of the firm belief
0: it, it was
1: just a toe. race.
2: Yeah. It's a race
0: for survival. Sounds like a it gauntlet, not
1: <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> so it was a, a, a Spartan-esque event, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Right? And with the cops chasing you know alongside how quick could they get pulled down or if they made it you know so the best were the full compete completion of the gauntlet down and then evade the cop. Yeah, oh, right. yeah, yeah. right. oh yeah. Oh yeah. Immediate cheers of the crowd, right? <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> Caesar was happy. <laughs> it's like you
0: win the you win the porta potty race and then you have the real race. Right. Boy jail race.
2: So apparently there were some medical concerns uh, surrounding those activities and no, the proximity no. of port-a-johns to one another. Mm. And they have since I promised myself I wouldn't cry. <laughs> they spaced him <them> out? They <laughs> spaced him <them> out. <laughs> So now terrible. it's the
0: Derby Ninja Challenge.
2: <laughs> it's the Derby Ninja it, Challenge. I mean, it's still it's parkour. still um, decadent and
1: depraved as Hunter yes. S. Thompson would have uh, would have specified for us. But uh, the funny part is, I'm sure they spent ten years talking about the issue hmm. until someone said, "Hmm, maybe if you what? don't, <laughs> <laughs> how do we solve this? <laughs> yeah. Minor yeah. spacing, ah." <laughs> Genius! Feel, Let's give that guy a
0: raise! <laughs> I feel like the last one I watched, the guy just went through the roof of it. I think that was probably the end of <laughs> Surely it. Surely that happened. He just went right through.
2: But all our listeners, please go onto YouTube, mm-hmm. Google, or, and look for Porta john races at the <laughs> Kentucky Derby. It. it will be well worth your time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, a very surmising event. Uh, perfectly encapsulates uh, what it's about. Exactly. Know? It's yeah. just about
2: getting, getting lit, y'all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's... There's only so much horse racing that you can actually watch. I mean, some people I hear are into it, uh, yeah, I'm and I'm here. as into it as the next dude is, but I'm there for the party, so mm-hmm. as many people are in the city of Louisville. So uh, let's get back on the rails. Yeah. You got a lot of irons in the fire, Matt. Um, now, we were hoping to understand better how you facilitated the unfolding of all of these various opportunities that you consume an inordinate amount of your time with. Certainly. And so what really led you down – this entrepreneurial path?
1: Yep, uh, a couple things. Thing one was really my, I would say, out of the box perspective on things in general. Um, I was kind of the the why kid, questioning questioning stuff, um, but more so from the solution perspective, right? I could, you know, I would challenge authority per se, but I would do so in a, how about this way, right? So to sure. me, if you're, there's two ways to go about, um, Challenging authority, I guess, is the is the right word to look at, or the right way to look at, but do so with a solution. So I've always had that kind of perspective. If I have a better idea, and you're open minded, then let's go down a different path of, you know, maybe efficiency Mm -hmm. or other. So that kind of led me to a unique upbringing in school and doing things out of the box and taking college classes early, for example, when I was in high school, and then got to U of L for college and wanted to get into um, engineering and really the world of energy is what I was kind of focused on, this whole green, clean, save the world, you know, that kind of stuff, renewable energy, um, and what all that meant. I always knew I wanted to be on the business side of things, so I told myself I wasn't going to go down the business path without, you know, a really deep understanding of the technology side. Mm -hmm. For me, if you're going to, you know, sell something or move something forward in the world that's really meaningful and impactful, uh, you need to kind of understand that, right, what that is, what that does. Such a good approach. The ins and outs. So... So that was really what led me down the uh, the chemical engineering path, you know, at, at Louisville. Um, then the path took a turn towards California, which, funny story or not, was a, actually a result of the Kentucky Derby. Oh.
0: Six years ago, you won the porta potty race. I won the porta potty race
1: <laughs> and got a free ride to Newport Beach, California. Um, my partner Joey Wagner, who I mentioned, you know, does all the the finest events in the city for the Derby. We get a reach out from a group uh, in Orange County that's looking to do a derby event. And so this group happened to be the Orange County YPO group, which is the Young Presidents Organization. Mm, so it's uh-huh. CEOs and presidents. You can imagine the who's who of Orange County. Beautiful. Um, and that week we had already had 14 events scheduled. So Joey can't take anything on more his plate. I get designated as, hey, you need to run this event, you know, standalone on your own. Great. Do it a bunch of my fraternity guys in hire some folks um and put this thing together a to z for 50 of these you know i would say decently important folks Mm -hmm. coming in town to enjoy the derby and, and all the festivities one of the folks there um had just started a private equity firm out in california got to know me we spent you know vast majority of the weekend together at the track and at various events and whatnot and that led to a discussion of hey when you graduate you need to come to california and work for me so okay you know See if this guy is full of it or people say that kind of stuff blah blah blah. Sure. And I said uh okay great you know uh when do you want me to move. So you tell me. I said okay I'll see you in 2 weeks. Packed my stuff, moved to California, been there ever since. Just like that. Just like that. Kentucky Derby. Um so I was in a unique position when I moved to California, the the PE firm at the time was vastly healthcare focused. The CEO wanted to move into the energy space. So my job was to go more or less, find due diligence, recon, you know, report back, et cetera. What is going on in the world of energy technologies? That's a hell of an industry. As, shift.
0: Uh, yeah, big Very time. Broad too.
1: So, the definition of broad. Mm-hmm. My job description, my my job title was special projects. Mm. That was it. Report to <laughs> the CEO. Got to you know do my own thing more or less. Um, like trench coat. Ex- ex- <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. Um, So more or less, I spent about two years kind of doing diligence across the country on various technologies, right? Or or ideas. Could be a guy in a garage, could be, you know, a hundred million dollar thing. Just just kind of ferreting out what is real, where the industry is going, what opportunities are there, and what what can we do with that, you know, if we found one, for example. So I come across one technology and one idea, set up a meeting, um, and one of the gentlemen that showed up a gentleman named Peter Cappuccati. So Peter is my now partner at Bionatus, which we'll get to. Um, Pete has a super unique background. He was a nuclear physicist at Columbia in the late 80s, early 90s. He became an unemployed nuclear physicist. The government cut the grant. Ooh. So he's unemployed in Manhattan in Ninety-one, which is dangerous a dangerous thing—an unemployed nuclear physicist <laughs> in Manhattan, right? So, Dr. no Man. kidding. I mean, if you really think about that, it's like prime, prime opportunity. To exactly right. So, so he he makes the obvious career choice and goes into commercial real estate. <laughs> um, <laughs> realizes once he's in the the underbelly of the commercial real estate um, infrastructure, realizes that these guys make a boatload of money and majority of the groups out there at the time didn't add a lot of value to the end user, right? It was just a lot of cut and paste. Kind of everything was the same. Sure. So he came up with a new way to develop large corporate campuses and it all started on focusing on the end user. So a lot of our technologies today have this focus on the end user, you know, deliver value all the way through kind of ideology. Sure. And so that was a notion of Pete's perspective and and working with um, large landlords, for example. So the net net of that, what that meant is you're building a $100 million campus for MySpace at the time or Pacific Life or whoever it was. Mm-hmm. Their group, their team could cut out 30 to 40% of fluff that typically goes into that deal. So they would build a $100 million campus for 60 million bucks, take a fee, everyone's happy, interests are aligned, et cetera. So you can imagine how scalable that process is. Indeed. And so over a period of, you know, what he thought was going to be a summer just to make some money and find his next physics thing turned into a 20-year real estate career. They did about $30 billion in commercial real estate development all across the globe. Um, And then he subsequently left that infrastructure, that world, his team and company he built to then get back into physics. So that's kind of where our stories pick back up. You know, 2011, 2012, more or less took a sabbatical and he was doing similar thing that I was trying to do, go around Get your hands on what's happening out there in the world of, of new technologies. Mm-hmm. He saw a lot of opportunity, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of guys that are super, super out there um, that had zero chance of acquiring any funding or capital from the traditional VC world mm. because they're so far out there mm. that you bring in a guy to due diligence and speak to this guy. I mean, he's speaking Swahili to yeah, him, right? right? There's no right. no course. chance, right? And there's all the age-old issues with the super smartest guy in the room from a technology perspective. They all think their idea is worth a billion dollars, right? They all think because they invented that, well, then duh, they know how to build a website and a marketing proposal and a budget. And you guys are all shaking your heads at me because you guys know it all too well. So (laughs) what we did and what Pete did and, and big credit to him was create an entity or an infrastructure an environment to where we bring in the inventor. If the technology was meaningful, scalable, you know, patentable, et cetera. We did all the vetting, right? So we spend the resources to do that. Then we would build an entity around that, right? Versus going and investing in all these things that already existed and could have been a mess, you know, Mm. from a business document and capital structure and everything perspective. Of course. So all the technologies and everything we have to date were created from scratch in that regard. And in that regard, we've done a very good job of keeping the inventors inventing and out of Business plan, marketing, mm-hmm. fundraising, da da da, da da da. Yep. So that allows for a very seamless, you know, uh build once we have something that's kind of meaningful, you know, and scalable.
2: It allows people to specialize in what mm-hmm. they're good at. You Do can.
1: what you are good at. Not not know what you are not good at. Smart, is, smart, smart. Yeah, such a such an underutilized uh I would say perspective is knowing what you are not good at and being okay with that. Mm-hmm. Right. I think a lot of people try to be decent at every single thing, right? And that, to me, that's kind of a, you reach reach a point of diminishing return on your own time, your own skill set, you know, what what you can bring to the table. If you're a specialist, build a team of specialists, then leverage the team, you know, accordingly. So Pete had a rough, I would say, handle on some guys, some technologies, some IP, some things that had promise. I meet him. I'm like, holy crap! This guy's already done five years and ten, you know, million bucks worth of what we need to be trying to do. Um, we subsequently bring him into the private equity firm along with the assets and the IP and you know all the, the super smart folks that came along with that. Um, and then we start, you know, then we got to work as building out these companies. Um, about I would say a year into that endeavor, private equity firm has a healthcare asset. They go to take the healthcare asset public. The venture capital groups that they were dealing with, not so friendly. You know, you get in these situations where you think some oh, of these no. VC groups are your partners. Turned out they were not. They're your bosses. They're your bosses. <laughs> um and they more or less tried to, you know, do a different deal than was originally discussed or on the table with, mm-hmm. with the PE firm. That didn't sit so well with the head of the PE firm. So he more or less told the VCs to kick rocks and PE firm had to put up, you know, substantial amount of capital that they were not planning on doing otherwise, but turned out very good on, on the healthcare side of things. What that caused was myself, Peter, and the assets that we had, the opportunity for us to spin them out of the private equity firm into Bionatus, create our own entity, standalone. That way people, if they wanted to invest or partners or whatever, you're at a standalone entity versus a massive you know, PE fund at the time that we were in. So that happened around mid towards, uh, mid, mid-ish, towards say late 2016. So we formed Bionatus. Um, and then under Bionatus, we have respective pieces of various entities that we've developed, you know, and kind of brought to market over time. So in a very long-winded, I'm going to pause and take a drink of this <laughs> for Rose now, that is the backstory of, of, of how we more or less came to be. Well, that's, that's an incredi- that's an incredible insight on an industry that,
2: you know, I look at, you know, you think about emerging energy technologies and things like that, and usually... It's propped up you think about like the electronic power research institute or something like that that's propped up by you know nuclear energy powerhouses and they're all like chipping in trying to figure out cleaner ways to run energy and this is all for lack of a better term a bunch of blue hairs trying to throw money at a problem that they have no intent of really solving and you know coal does the exact same thing there's,
1: there's a lot of the i would say the majority of the large issues in the energy sector don't want to be solved yeah mm-hmm. there's a, there's, a, there's an inherent alignment of interest for you to not use less power right people or don't for... talk about things like that no. they, they
0: don't there's a lot of things that don't want to change yeah that doesn't benefit them
1: i mean that's incredible that you guys that
2: that uh, it was it was you and pete and a handful of other people had the insight to say hey there's a
1: vein that has yet to be tapped here and we can shake this thing up yeah it's you know a big a big part of the and and my perspective and kind of what i've think I bring to the table is navigating that, right? So none of our technologies and none of our business plans try to go up the massive status quo wall. We leverage existing infrastructures that are more or less movable from underneath or above, below, et cetera, because a lot of the technologies and a lot of the approaches, we're just going to go straight at the big guy, right, and disrupt this whole, no, you're not, no chance. They have more money, more lobby, more resources, more. It's it's, it is the system for a reason. Hmm. So for us, it's all about implementing our things. Um, and I'll, I'll say, you know, this word probably or this concept probably ten times. Aligning the interests all the way through, because if you have all layers of whoever you're dealing with, right? It's not just the customer. It's the supplier. It's who's dealing with the supplier, right? It's all these. Everything. You align those things, and you can move them all at once, right? Versus fighting all these battles of. You have so. very
0: you have a very eloquent ten thousand foot view, and uh, it's fascinating. It was, you were mentioning earlier just uh, discussing how people communicate and you know being okay with maybe this isn't my area and you know and accepting that and you know having a physicist do what a physicist does. But you yourself being a a very young entrepreneur, uh, did, how did you find that? How did you, it seems like you almost just trial by fire jumped in, but. But I mean, obviously, hearing you talk, you've you've a very solid grasp of what you were doing and wh- what you were looking to see out of it. You know what I mean?
1: Reckless optimism. <laughs> reckless <laughs> optimism. I sum it up in yeah. two words. That's the two words that Beautiful. categorize my my perspective. And it it's a back. It's look. It's back to the the why not kind of thing. Um, I think that is a you know an easier summation of it. But when you have reckless optimism, and then you're not for me. When, you, talking about the uh, the failure side of things, when you're not afraid to fail at something, then it gives you a much clearer or much uh, more carefree approach to stuff, right? So with what I do to move things forward, you have to take risks, right? By definition, it's all course, a risk, but doing so in a, I'm okay with that, right? I live with the decisions I make business-wise and other, And if it doesn't work out, so be it, that's okay. Being okay with that allows you to navigate it quickly and you kind of come full circle with it. For me, a lot of people get in trouble is they don't, they're so afraid to fail that they'll either stay on a path they should have punted from Mm -hmm. a long time, right? Or don't take the chance initially, right? And hinder themselves from even knowing, is it gonna fail or not? But I think the latter is, is a lot, I would say a big issue that a lot of entrepreneurs face is knowing once you have failed, you know, I don't know who came up with the term, but fail fast. Yes. Right. And get off of it. Yeah. You, know. g- you got to be as quick to pick up the next thing as you were to go down that initial path. Yeah, Kill it quick. And be yeah. okay with that. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that's a, that's a big, a key trait. Um, you know, for me and just what, what my skill set is and what it isn't, you know, I'm fortunate enough that Peter, for example, my partner, we are very similar in our uh, background and technical understanding, both speak can talk to engineers and scientists and whatnot. He is a hyper analytical spreadsheets, you know, models, legal documents way down that rabbit hole. A nerd. That's fine. He's a nerd. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> in the nicest of context, and he'll he'll admit it. And I'm more of the business development, social. I'm out at the events, I'm putting the pieces together. I'm you know, bringing people in. So we we split, I would say, our our core competency but from uh, how we see things and how we move it's very you know in parallel so we're, we're a excellent very
0: excellent partnership
1: comfortable with that i mean you you got a really refreshing
2: take on risk um you know whereas a lot of people the reason they're not they don't work for themselves you know a lot of the reasons why they're still clocking in nine to five is because they they have an innate aversion to that risk. What do you think it was about your upbringing, perhaps about your education and professional experience that allows you to adequately embrace that risk um, and run head-on into it?
1: Hmm. That is a good question. I mean, I would say a couple things, but to me, risk in anything is just at what level of awareness do you want to have of the risks that exist, right? So there's risk okay. in uh, anything. So if you if you have a, a nine to five job and you think there's no risk in that, I would say you are just not aware of the risks in your nine to five job. Certainly. So therefore you don't perceive, you perceive someone doing something else as risky, mm-hmm. which is often not the case because the nine to five job that you have you still have a boss and an owner and stuff going on in the background, and you know they could be struggling to make payroll every week. Mm-hmm. That could be the risk. Your nine to five job could not be there next week. Mm-hmm. You don't know that, but there's still risk involved. So I don't look at it as this is a risk. This is not a risk. You know, there's all a, a certain level of risk association with everything. Just how that impacts you and limits you or doesn't, or motivates you or doesn't. It's, it's, that's my perspective, mm-hmm. generally speaking on it. Right on. I love that. I love that.
2: I mean, you probably – go ahead, Chris. Oh, no, no, oh, no. You probably had some scary moments, you know, going down this path. I mean, any anything that you run across that kind of sticks out in your mind? I mean, scariest moment you experienced starting any of the businesses you've been a- affiliated with?
1: Oh, man, just starting a business in general, right? It's like you get this triangle – or not the triangle, but more of a progression of, okay, once you have an idea, I'll take you through a – Like a technology assessment for example so all of our things we look at does it does it work can it be proven right kind of step one is the viability factor right um okay if those two boxes are checked step the next step is there a market and do people care there's a huge one because there's a million things in the world that you can make it Mm -hmm. you can spend a lot of money you can spend a lot of time Mm -hmm. and unless you have a lot of money and a lot of time then you could find yourself in a, a complicated situation to where you made this thing but then there's not a market for it or no one wants it or no one cares or it's too expensive to be viable right you get in the old you know cost analysis of, of viability which is a whole you know another universe mm. um then once you check those boxes then you still have to sell the thing it could be the greatest thing on earth like these patches for example that you guys are wearing but <laughs> it's very
0: comfortable even its patches even <laughs> with the patches
1: the, the reality of the world today is that people don't care until they try it. So it could be sitting right in front of their face. Mm-hmm. They don't know the blood, sweat, tears that you put into stuff. No one – no one. you don't go to CVS and look across the pain relief yeah. shelf and say, man, the guy that created that, I bet they don't sleep much. Yeah. Right? <clears throat> I bet they had hardships making it. They don't think that. they Does it work for me or does it not? If so, you know, then, then you can gallivant them and build your customer base and all that kind of fun stuff. But no, this – I mean – I would say creating businesses in general. Um, and then getting people being confident enough in yourself to get people to take risks in you. That's a big one. Mm. When you go fundraise, for mm. example, that's a whole other world, yeah. right? Oh, the, yeah. the entrepreneurial world, it don't teach you too much of that. Right. Right. It's you gotta go into a place, you gotta be confident, you gotta look somebody in the eye i believe in what i'm doing here's what i'm building here's my plan i'm going to show you everything i'm going to walk you through it and then will you write me a check yeah yeah that's not a until you to go, ask for the clothes until you go and do that you can't you can't prepare someone for that right you can't explain what that is until so a lot of those um and a lot of no's right you don't you know when you're you have to be another thing a lot of people take no's and internalize them and then use them, you know, it becomes a setback, right? You go meet with 100 people who raise capital and 10 of them believe in you and come on board and whatnot. It's a relatively good percent, right? Yeah. especially if they, people don't know you, if there's mm-hmm. no, you know, this is a cold call exercise or, or whatnot. But I think a lot of people go through that, especially initially, and they get the no's and then, man. Then they start doubting them, and they start you know just get disenfranchised big time. Yeah, big time. I mean, I've seen a a lot of good good ideas and good people and smart entrepreneurs just get beat down because of that process, right? And it's yeah, that's I would say. There's a lot of a lot of uh initial scare until you've done it, and then you're over it. And you practice it, and this and that. You know, at at the actual business side of building a business. Certainly,
2: I mean, you know, we. We work a lot in, you know, intangible products, uh, services, you know, everything's web-based, that kind of stuff. And, I mean, while we spend a lot of time on research and development, creating a lot of interesting technology, we don't produce tangible products. And there are hurdles that you all experience creating tangible products that a lot of folks and perhaps some of our listeners might not be familiar with. So what do you kind of find... The most difficult aspects surrounding you know starting and growing a business which is probably more important i mean anybody can start a business but who can grow a business um growing a business around those tangible products and i mean you hit on you know making sure there's a market
1: and actually being able to sell it but i mean anything else that kind of stands oh, yeah. out big time so that's a good good segue there so you make sure there's a market people want to buy it you've checked all your boxes, you're ready to roll, right? The thing is built, it's beautiful. First box, ready to go out the door. Then you start selling something, then the fun begins and the risks and the problems and, 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 and. because until you've sold something, you're not dealing with customer feedback, right? You're not dealing with large scale logistics, Mm -hmm. right? Managing your supply chain, distribution. there's all these it's like a whole new second layer, right? As soon as you start selling something. Sure. And especially if your thing works and you start to sell a lot of it quickly, that creates a whole new spider web. I wish I could have, there needs to be a, like a, a graphic for this that shows what all is involved uh, when, you're, when you're selling something, especially a direct to consumer product, for example, e-commerce, all that kind of fun stuff, you know, because you've got, everything from logistics to dealing with manufacturers to their sourcing right their issues become your issues yeah so you have to you layer in other people's problems right oh the fabric was delayed for the patches now you're stuck now you're now it throws off my financial model for the meeting i have tomorrow to go raise more capital to scale the business right it's like all these things people don't take into account it's not just you once you start selling something yeah it's
2: funny, it's like you, you go through all this effort and you go through all this product design, this packaging design, mm-hmm. finding your customers, selling to your customers, and then some jackass. <laughs> Sorry, man, I couldn't get the sticky stuff for you this week. Gotcha, bitch. <laughs> the
1: drummer <laughs> can't hold the beat. Exactly right. <laughs> so you got to get real good at uh, outside management, right? Because you know I'm dealing with my own internal people and then I have to deal with... Fifty different groups of external people. Sure, right. So that becomes a whole new game as far as as far as management goes when you're when you're selling a product into a marketplace.
0: Hmm.
2: So we've talked a little bit about the patches and whatnot. I I, you know I find Blue on incredibly interesting. Yeah. Um, And you know, and I oftentimes think about you know what what are the big hurdles. In opening up a new business like this and with el toro you know ours is educating the masses as to what real traffic tends to look like and you have not the same issue but it's a parallel issue in similar facet to a different audience where you have to kind of educate people on what's going on with freon what's going on with r22 Um, and how do you create infrastructure around that education, rolling out a product? And, you know, I'm really, you know, and this is a side note, you don't even have to go into it on the podcast, but, you know, the transport of those chemicals, um, and sensitive materials like this, and I mean, it's probably not crazy sensitive because it's a green product, um, so to speak, but, um, you know, give us some insights into working with something that's such an industry disruptive product. Yep. Uh, like blue on, and tell the tell the audience what blue on is. I hate. Yeah, I'm going into this acting like people know what blue on is. <laughs> Why do you not know what blue on is?
1: So I'll give you the the ten year goal from for blue on, which I think will give listeners perspective of what we're trying to accomplish. So our goal is ten years from now, you'll say the word blue on like you said the word freon. Sure, right. Meaning most people don't really so much know what it is, other than they utilize it in all of their air conditioning infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Kind of just an is at that point um in a nutshell blue on is the only energy efficient replacement for freon so it's as simple as you take the freon out which is being phased out globally anyway mm-hmm. so the, the supply of freon is dwindling rapidly um, and you replace it with blue on which is just another refrigerant um, and you can utilize or uh, enable energy savings within that same piece of equipment which is a huge deal it's like getting your oil changed Um, of upwards of 25%. So, you know, commercial office building, for example, HVAC is typically 50% of your OPEX, Mm -hmm. right? Of your, of the energy bill. So imagine taking off 25% of the biggest energy spend. You're talking big dollars. quickly, Especially for large facilities. Big time. Um, (laughs) and again, it's something that you'll have to do at some point because the Freon's being phased out. Alternatively, the other products that were invented prior to us, um, Two things, two issues with that. One, they're commodities. So it was how cheap can we mix cheap stuff together sure. um, and sell it to the marketplace, irregardless of the efficiencies that that thing drives in the system. Because contrary to popular belief, your HVAC contractor, your service guy, etc., has no care what your utility bills are because they don't pay for them. If your HVAC system is on, their job is done. If it's off, they have a problem anything in between, not their issue. Yeah, right? for real. So the, the key point, back to your point on awareness, we're in a unique position with BlueOn. on So we created the most awesome refrigerant product, uh, I would say, ever made. That's a, that's a fair statement. Freon is an awesome product being phased out globally for its environmental impact. Um, and we created BlueOn. on And this is back to the point of, even if you create the most impactful thing on the world, and you have it physically you can touch it, it's patented, it's proven, blah, 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 until you have it packaged up and marketed and whatever, no one cares. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. So it's back to that point about you know we assess or we associate a ten percent of the battle is creating that thing, ninety mm-hmm. percent of it is getting it out to the world with that, um awareness is the whole ball game because we have to educate two layers here: one, the end user who typically has no clue about what's in their HVAC system. Uh, They just know what their utility bills are. Sure. If they're not aware of this issue, they'll wake up. Contractor has commoditized that decision and their utility bills, their OPEX could be 20% higher as a result of not being aware. So we enlighten them to what is happening, irregardless of us, right? It's like the whole, very similar to the, here's the world of ad traffic. Here's the world of refrigerants. Here's what's happening. Here's what's happening. It's a very similar path that Indeed. we go down with our with our El Toro solution being obviously the blue-on. Um, so awareness is key, particularly for the end users. But what we've done to, again, back to this align the interest concept, end user could want the product, be all on board. We're in, check the box, sign us up, put it in tomorrow. You still have to deal with the contractor. Mm. There's still a the guy that's physically up there doing it. Who doesn't work for you. Doesn't work for. It works for them. Sure, you know. But he's he's not your guy initially, unless you show up with your blue on. Which is not enough, right? They don't care. They, it's, your blue on is the same as all the other stuff to them. But if you show up with your blue on and tools, tips, tricks, solutions, apps, things that make their job easier and their life easier, man, do they love you. Mm. So you're going at this, and yep.
2: you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you're going at this from an angle of engaging the end user, folks like myself. Yep. And you want to educate the Dave Stadlers, Chris McConnell's, and Jeremy Ficklins of the world yep. to ask for Blue On. Yep. And then procure that. They, they, in essence, end up having to procure that product or?
1: No, via their contractor. Okay, okay gotcha. So you would gotcha. call whoever services your house, whoever's your AC guy, for example. Joe Smith, AC, of, of Louisville, Kentucky. You call Joe Smith. Hey, Joe, I just met Matt from Blue On. He said he's got this thing. I'm going to save me some money, get rid of my Freon problem, blah, 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 blah. Joe Smith says, Blue On, what's that? Go look it up. Okay, go look it up. Calls us. Got his myriad of questions. It's a snake oil. We've seen crap like this before. Sure. Show me your customer testimonials. Boom. Show me your case studies. Boom. Show me third-party data. Boom. Oh, by the way, Joe Smith, guess what? For you, I've got a custom built app. We built an app from scratch that has every piece of R22 equipment ever made in it. All of them. 18,000. So Joe Smith downloads the Blue On app, shows up at your house, looks at your piece of equipment, and says, Oh, here it is. Boom. What do I do to convert this system? Boom. Awesome. Converts it to Blue On, you save twenty five percent. Joe Smith is now the biggest Blue on fan on the earth because I just made his life easier, mm-hmm. right? Now he has a new proactive revenue stream that he can go out to every neighbor of yours, go convert all their systems to BlueOn. So we're flipping the whole service ecosystem. Certainly. By having a solution, right? We're a solution provider at the end of the day. The product is awesome. That's the value prop that gets us in the door. But creating these tools to make Joe Smith's life easier and do his job better. That's the driver.
0: Yeah, just as important.
2: Indeed. Yeah. And, I mean, you think about it, and, and, like, from a standpoint of a product where, you know, you've got an HVAC system, and you, you put it very aptly, it's either working or it's not. Um, there are very few opportunities that are provided to an HVAC company that allows them to openly re-engage the client. You've got regular service. You've got, hey, winterize your stuff. Um, but how about I save you 25% on your cooling bills mm-hmm. every freaking month? I mean, that's a hell of a fucking mess, pardon my French, <laughs> to put out to a bunch of HVAC people that can engage their end users and say, hey, let me save you a big amount of money
1: uh, every single month. That's impressive. You're turning yeah. these guys into you know, value providers versus service providers, right? It's a whole different indeed you know, ROI association yeah. with that, right? And it's, especially if a guy, if Joe Smith's done a good job for the past 30 years, he's got 30 years of business built up, a book of business that... He might not have talked to these customers in 10 years because he exactly. had a reason to mm-hmm. but now he can go through and data mine his existing infrastructure uh-huh solve their issue that they have make oh. a buck at it and save them some money i think <laughs> you guys got a solid plan <laughs> how
0: did you stumble upon blue one how did you guys find that
1: yeah so that was that was pete his original when he had this idea to bring in these highly intelligent people it's because he saw a guy in a garage mixing organic chemicals together and trying to come up with this concept for replacement for freon concept's great organic stuff not so much you know you you get sourcing issues every that's that's the issue with uh organics at scale the next batch of stuff that comes in is going to be wildly different than the last batch of stuff so you can't Mm -hmm. you know commercialize stuff but this concept and this this ideology of creating a better product for Freon that was more energy efficient was again a, a guy in a garage mixing stuff together. You know, and here Seeing we are now. What he
0: can so. do? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> working on some moonshine upstairs. We might be able to come up with some solutions. <laughs> yeah, right? that's in the future, very. Man. Uh... <laughs> I'm just kidding. We're not working on moonshine. Anymore. No, not at all. No. We wouldn't do that. We we're we distilling that. water. Yes, we don't do that here. Not here. <laughs> not here. No, we have rules here.
2: <laughs> man, uh, this is I, honestly, this has been an enlightening uh, enlightening little podcast here. nice little education for mm-hmm. us but and we we really appreciate you stopping in. Um, you know if there's anything that you're working on currently that you want to kind of put on blast to our listeners here, you feel free. Um, but man, thank you so much for spending the time coming in, chatting with us today and sharing a little bit of bourbon on the com podcast
1: excellent thanks guys i I really appreciate that i mean i think you kind of hit the nail on the head with the two things that we're working on i mean with luminos and our our patches um you know obviously i would highly advise anyone that's in pain uh give our patches a try and then again on the the blue on world so you know anyone that's has large hvac infrastructure uh commercial offices real estate owners etc you know they're all gonna be facing this issue near term so blue on is a, a great uh alternative and a a solution for that as well.
2: Indeed. What's the uh, phase out, uh, just uh, for my own edification and perhaps that of our listeners, what's that
1: uh, schedule looking like to have um, Freon totally phased out? Yeah, so the end of 2019, uh, global production and importation goes to zero. So no more new product uh, will be brought into the states and or produced in the states. Hmm. Um, Production in the states kind of ceased many, many years ago, but importation was tens of millions of pounds of year. Per year, and slowly phase down. You know, over the last 20 or so years, and so this is the last year of that, which means you know by the end of this summer, end of this year, there's going to be a large uh, gap between the amount of product you need to service existing infrastructure and the amount of product available mm. to service existing infrastructure. Interesting.
2: So your HVAC people are going to be carrying blue on on their truck come summer of 2020? Mm -hmm. Uh, If
1: they're not, you need to call them accordingly uh, (laughs) because they will make a bad decision for you otherwise.
0: Mm -hmm. Indeed.
1: Man, Matt, thank you so much for coming in today. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me. Fantastic.
0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of the El Toro podcast. Your host has been David Stadler with co-hosts Chris McConnell and Jeremy Ficklin. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to drop us a line and let us know your thoughts. We will see you next time.